You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click donate. Self-defense in and of itself is not violence. Violation is violence. Oppression is violence. Injustice is violence. Protecting one's privilege and power over others is violence. Self-defense or or self-affirmation in the face of all these things is not in and of itself violent. Welcome to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee might have to offer us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. This is episode 302, and our title is A Primer on Self-Affirming Nonviolence Part 9. Renewed Heart Ministries is a nonprofit organization working for a world of love and and justice. And we need your support to continue bringing the kind of resources and analysis that RHM provides. Intersections between faith and love and compassion and societal justice, they're needed right now more than ever. Help Christians be better humans. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Renewed Heart Ministries today. To do so, all you have to do is go to our website, renewedheartministries.com, and click Donate on on the top right, or if you prefer to make a donation by mail, our address is Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. And to those of you out there who are already supporting our work, I want to say thank you. We could not continue being a voice for change without your support. Before we wrap up this series on self-affirming nonviolent resistance, I want to address a topic that often comes up when we speak about nonviolence, and that's the topic of self-defense. When Peter uses the sword in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells him, put your sword back in its place, for all those who draw the sword will die by the sword, Matthew 26, 52. And some Christians use this passage to say that if if we take Jesus' nonviolence seriously, we also have to reject all self-defense. I don't uh, uh, agree with this interpretation. I interpret this story of Peter as pointedly rejecting the use of violence to accomplish the kind of human community, what what the gospel authors called the kingdom that that Jesus envisioned. I I don't interpret this passage as a a blanket rejection of of marginalized people's self-defense. I don't interpret it as rejecting their their self-defense. Rejecting their self-defense has produced harmful, and especially for women, even lethal fruit uh, for victims of violence. Jesus taught violated people ways to resist violation and, and to stand up and to affirm their selves when their humanity, their selves were being denied. And we covered this at great length in, in part four. I'll recommend you going back. If that's a new thought for you, go back and listen to, to, to part four. But as we discussed repeatedly in this series, Jesus did not teach his followers to be passive or submissive in the face of injustice, oppression, and and violation. And there's a difference uh, between using lethal force in self-defense and and using non-lethal yet violation-halting force. And I don't mean to imply that 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 just because something is non-lethal that it's non-violent. Yet yet there are some forms of self-defense 
that follow, we've, we've mentioned this quotation before, follow Deming's illustration of, of stopping the perpetrator while refusing to let go of their humanity and leaving open the possibility of transformation, of the, of the perpetrator making uh, better choices. Again, this is uh, Barbara Deming's Revolution and Equilibrium. She wrote this in 1971. This is page 224. With one hand, we say to the one who is angry or to an oppressor or to an unjust system, stop what you are doing. I refuse to honor the role that you're choosing to play. I refuse to obey you. I refuse to cooperate with your demands. I refuse to build the walls and the bombs. I refuse to pay for the guns. With this hand, I will even interfere with the wrong you are doing. I want to disrupt the easy pattern of your life. But then the advocate of nonviolence raises the other hand hand. It is raised outstretched, maybe with love and sympathy, maybe not, but always outstretched. And with this hand, we say, I won't let go of you or cast you out of the human race. I have faith that you can make a better choice than you are making now, and I'll be here when you are ready. Like it or not, we are part of one another. Self-defense in and of itself, is not violence. Violation is violence. Oppression is violence. Injustice is violence. Protecting one's privilege and power over others is violence. Self-defense or or self-affirmation in the face of all these things is not in and of itself violence. And although one can employ violence, one can also uh, reject it. There are countless examples that we have today of nonviolent forms of self-defense. But does nonviolent self-defense only apply to individuals? Can nonviolent forms of self-defense be used globally? Just war theory is a violent form of self-defense on on a global scale. Um, But are there other options? I want to bring up an event that's usually used to illustrate the limitations of nonviolence and accuse nonviolence advocates of being naive. And the question is usually phrased, would nonviolence have stopped Hitler in World War II? This is a great question. And first, a few things that we need to lay down first. Uh, To say that America entered World War II to defend the Jewish people against Hitler's Holocaust, that romanticizes the history at best. It reconstructs it at worst. The U.S. knew what Hitler was doing long before it entered the war, and it still chose to remain on the sidelines. And it wasn't until the Japanese government attacked the United States' interest in Pearl Harbor that that the U.S. entered uh, the war. America also they could have ended Hitler's Holocaust without firing a single shot. The following is from A People's History of the United States, and and I will... I'll put a link to this article in, in this week's e-site, but, uh, but this is what it states. By 1941, Standard Oil of New Jersey, and, and that, that was Exxon, the Exxon Company, was the largest oil company in the world, controlling 84% of the U.S. petroleum market. Its bank was Chase, and its owners were the Rockefellers. J.D. Rockefeller had always argued that two things were essential to the oil industry's survival, checking ruinous competition 
and cooperation. Given the success of his monopoly at making enormous profits for its investors while at the same time destroying any form of competition and keeping prices artificially high, it seems quite clear whose survival he was really talking about. After the Rockefellers, the next largest stockholder in Standard Oil, and remember that was Exxon, was IG Farben, the giant German chemical company. And this is where this article gets interesting. This investment was part of a pattern of reciprocal investments between the U.S. and Germany during the Nazi years. During the Great Depression, Germany was viewed as a hot area in which to invest. And the, the article continues, a brief aside is required here to explain what type of company IG Farben actually was. At the time, it was the world's largest chemical company, and through the talents of its scientists and engineers, it secured the vital self-sufficiency that was to enable Germany to maneuver in the world of power politics. From its laboratories, the factories flowed... The Sorry, from its laboratories and factories flowed the strategic raw materials that Germany's own territory could not supply. The synthetics of oil, gasoline, rubber, nitrates, and fibers. In addition, IG Farben produced vaccines and drugs such as salvarsan, aspirin, Adabrine and Novocaine, along with sulfur drugs, as well as the poison gases and rocket fuels. The death of IG Farben's connection to Nazi policy was finally realized at Auschwitz, the extermination center where four million people were destroyed in accordance with Hitler's final solution of the Jewish question. Drawn by the seemingly limitless supply of death camp labor, and when you when you read in this article, death camp labor. They're talking about free, free labor by those in concentration or extermination camps that benefited these corporations. IG Farben built IG Auschwitz, a huge industrial complex designed to produce synthetic rubber and oil. This installation used as much electricity as the entire city of Berlin, and more than 25,000 camp inmates died during its construction. IG Farben eventually built its own concentration camp known as Monowitz, which was closer to the site of the complex than Auschwitz was in order to eliminate the need need to march prisoners several miles to and from the plant every day. And, and, and we can't gloss over uh, this history uh, e either. This, this IG Farben, this was the company, the article goes on to say, this was the company that enthusiastically embra em that was embraced by Standard Oil or Exxon, as well as other major American corporations like DuPont and General Motors. I do not, however, state that Standard Oil or Exxon collaborated with the Nazis simply because I IG Farben was its second largest shareholder. In fact, without the explicit help of Standard Oil, the Nazi Air Force would never have gotten off the ground in the first place. Now, let me repeat that. Without the explicit help of Standard Oil, that means Exxon, the Nazi Air Force would never have gotten off the ground in the first place. The planes that made up the Luftwaffe needed 
tetrathyl, tetrathyl, yes, uh, tetrathyl lead gasoline in order to fly. At the time, only Standard Oil, DuPont, and General Motors had the ability to produce this vital substance. In 1938, Walter C. Teagle, then president of Standard Oil, helped Herman Schmitz of IG Farben to acquire 500 tons of tetrathyl lead from Ethel, a British Standard subsidiary. In a year later, Schmitz returned to London and obtained an additional $15 million worth of tetrathyl lead, which was to be turned into aviation gasoline back in Germany. One of the most uh, damning pieces of, of this article is where it goes next. A few paragraphs later, it states, After the war began in Europe, the English became angry about U.S. shipments of strategic materials to Nazi Germany. This was still while the U.S. had not entered the war yet. Standard Oil immediately changed the registration of their entire fleet to Panamanian to avoid British search and seizure. These ships continued to carry oil to Tenerife in the Canary Islands, where they refueled and siphoned oil to German tankers for shipment to Hamburg. And then finally, the article states, this deception was exposed on March 31, 1941, when the U.S. State Department issued a detailed report on fueling stations in Mexico and Central and South America where that were suspected of furnishing oil to Italian and German merchant vessels. The report listed Standard Oil of New Jersey and Standard Oil of California among those fueling enemy ships, but there's no record of any action being taken as a result of this discovery. Similar deals between Standard Oil and the Japanese government for the purchase of tetrathyl lead was have also been uncovered, but no direct action was ever taken against Standard Oil for its dealing with America's enemies. A brief side note, however, is that on April 17, 1945, the Chase National Bank was placed on trial in federal court on charges of having violated the Trading with the Enemy Act by converting German marks into U.S. dollars. Because many countries refused to accept German currency during the war, the Nazis used foreign banks like Chase National to change the currency into money that would be accepted and thus allowed them to purchase much-needed materials to prolong the war. The closer one looks... The more ties one finds between American business and Nazi Germany, many of which remained strong well into and beyond the war. In other words, had U.S. corporations, had they valued people over profit, especially people who were being exterminated over war profiteering? Hitler would have never had the resources, the gasoline, the oil, the rubber, the nitrates, the fibers. He would have never had the resources needed for the war and the Holocaust of, of Jewish and other marginalized people to, uh, to take place. Uh, another article is Ford and GM scrutinized for alleged Nazi collaboration. I'll put a link to this article as well. I'm only going to read you one paragraph from this, this article. 
It also is lengthy. It says, although Henry Ford later renounced his anti-Semitic writings, he remained an admirer of Nazi Germany and sought to keep America out of the coming war. In July 1938, four months after the German annexation of Austria, he accepted the highest medal that Nazi Germany could bestow on a foreigner, the Grand Cross of the German Eagle. The following month, a senior executive for General Motors, James Mooney, received a similar medal for his distinguished service to the Reich. German trucks driven by the Nazis were manufactured by the Ford Motor Company and by Opel, which was General Motors, which also built German warplanes. This entanglement, it lasted until America declared war in Germany in December of 1941. And and, and when contact with, with the German subsidies, their German subsidies, uh, the subsidiaries of all these companies, when that became illegal... All companies involved, they, 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 well, it becomes cloudy what they did then, but there was still profiteering taking place. Now, I also want to be clear, all the companies that were involved t- today, they denounce their activities with the Nazis. But, but closing their free labor camps and blocking the Nazis' extermination of the Jews and, and others, that could have brought Hitler's efforts to its knees without a shot ever even being fired. But we'll never know. That would have been a, a nonviolent global form of stopping the oppressor and defending the rights of, of the oppressed. And lastly, in this treatment of self-defense, I want to address uh, home invasion. That's more personal, more individual, not global. Uh, and I want to also disclose that I've had my own home broken into. I understand this violation firsthand. And also, I also realize that we live in a system that creates winners and losers, and sometimes losers become desperate in their attempts to survive. We we must understand when someone is stealing a loaf of bread just to be able to eat. I'm reminded of, of, of Hugo's Les Miserables, where, where a priest responds to Valjean's theft of silver by giving him the additional silver candlesticks. We must learn to distinguish between those in a more marginalized social location defending their right to live, to survive, and, 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 and distinguish that from those who, who are coming from a more centered social location who are actually defending their privilege, their power, their property over others, who are subjugated. One is self-defense, the other is not self-defense, but a, but continued oppression. And are, 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 we have to ask, are we really defending ourselves? Or are we simply defending our privilege or, or standing our ground? Uh, self-defense, it does not have to violate the principle of self-affirming nonviolent resistance. But defending one's privilege against a more egalitarian world, that in itself is an act of violence. And I want to be clear, anyone who violates another person, they should be stopped, regardless of their social location. But we must learn to mercifully and justly hold on to their humanity too. Next week will be our, our final installment of this series. We're going to wrap up with part 10. Uh, I hope you'll, you'll be there with us. Heart group application this week. Number one, 
list some forms of nonviolent self-defense other than those that are found in Matthew 5, the, the examples that Jesus gives of cheek defiance and naked protest and, and refusing to play by one's oppressor's rules. Again, we covered all of those in part four. Use Google to help you if you need to, but discuss uh, uh, what nonviolent forms of self-defense that you found with your group. Number two, how can self-defense be the opposite of violence? That's a key question. Uh, and discuss that. And then discuss number three, discuss how you can apply these principles in your own life as we work together toward a safer, compassionate, and just world. Thanks for checking in with us this week. Wherever you are, keep choosing love, compassion, taking action, and working towards reparative and distributive justice. Another world is possible if we choose it. And don't forget, we need your support here at RHM to continue making, making a difference. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.